Let's pray together as we open God's word. Oh, Lord God, when the Roman governor Pilate ordered that the tomb be secured, he was just utterly and completely out of his depth. Because you, oh Lord, you overruled little Pilate as you rolled the stone away so that your resurrected son would come out. Lord, you changed the cosmos that very day. Things have never been the same since because of the resurrection. The resurrection, Lord, changes everything, and you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. And Lord, now as we open your word together to glory in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we ask your help. We ask that you would help us to focus on your living and active word for Jesus' sake, and in his name we pray, amen. One of the truly most astonishing examples of transformation that occurs in the natural world is the transformation of a caterpillar into a butterfly. So the caterpillar goes about its business, it lives its life happily, we think, one day it stops eating, and then it goes and it attaches itself to a surface and it hangs down inside and it forms what is called a chrysalis out of its own body. Now the chrysalis is sort of like a cocoon, but its composition is like the hard shell of a beetle instead of soft silk. And what happens inside the chrysalis is remarkable. The caterpillar digests itself, in essence, inside that chrysalis. The, the caterpillar re releases enzymes that dissolve its muscles and its digestive system, and so that you're left with what one scientist called caterpillar soup. But not everything dissolves inside the chrysalis. There are these little things called imaginal disks that remain intact. Imaginal disks are organized groups of cells that had laid dormant during the life cycle of the caterpillar. Now inside the chrysalis, God wakes them up and they are the building block of the butterfly that now forms. The butterfly is built from the inside out and within about two weeks, once it's fully formed, the chrysalis cracks open and of course the butterfly flies away. And apparently, and I think this is really amazing, recent re research has demonstrated that the butterfly has memories of its days as a caterpillar. It remembers things. And so there is this demonstrable co continuity between the caterpillar and its transformation as a butterfly. Remarkable. On Good Friday and Holy Saturday, Jesus lay dead in the tomb. No breath, no heart pumping, no consciousness, dead. But there was a remarkable transformation 
Now, it wasn't simply that Jesus resuscitated, came back to life to live a few more days on the earth before succumbing again to death. It wasn't resuscitation. The resurrection of the Son of God far surpassed that. Jesus rose on Sunday, now the God-man was transformed in such a way that death no longer had dominion over him, to quote the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, verse 9. The risen Jesus Christ is the indestructible man. He is the God-man whose body can never and will never decay or perish. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was nothing less, friends, than the new creation breaking into history. And, says the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, the risen Jesus, oh, this is good news, is the first fruits of a wider grander, more far-reaching resurrection, the first fruits, the first pickings of a whole orchard of resurrections. And those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, who have received him as our Lord and Savior, those of us who live by faith in union with this crucified and resurrected Nazarene, we know that when we die, our soul will be temporarily, temporarily separated from our physical body. Our body will be laid in, in the earth as it goes when you die, while our soul will go immediately to be with Jesus. But according to the authoritative scriptures, our physical bodies will one day be raised, amen? To be reunited with our souls. We will be raised, friends, physically in the power of God because Jesus was raised physically. I mean, think of it, ourselves, the whole of us will be transformed magnificently on that great resurrection day, we will be fitted with, equipped with glorious bodies to live eternally and physically with him on the renovated earth. And this is all so incredible, isn't it? It's hard for us to fathom this. We have questions. I recently turned 53 and I've realized something. Being 53 means I'm no longer 20 or 30. <laughs> what a revelation, hey? <laughs> but the metabolism of my 53-year-old body has slowed. My eyes are bad, minus six in both eyes. I'm terribly nearsighted, can't drive without my glasses on. My teeth are breaking down. My hair, if you haven't noticed, is fast disappearing. And whatever muscle I had in my 20-year-old chest has gravitated down. <laughs> Sadly, it has changed into girth in my abdomen. I'm more tired at 53 than I was when I was 30. 
Um, I have joints that ache sometimes, and I never knew I had those joints when I was 20. But because of Christ being raised, God has promised me a transformed body one day. What will it look like? What will it be like? And how exactly will the resurrection happen? Well, these are exactly the same sorts of questions based on ignorance that the Corinthian believers were asking during Paul's day. In 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 15, verse 35, Paul says, but someone will ask, questions I just asked, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Well, the passage that we have before us today as our preaching passage gives us answers. It is revelation, listen, revelation from Almighty God, the God who raises the dead. The passage tells you, believer in Jesus, that you will undergo a glorious transformation. It will be a transformation that makes the caterpillar to butterfly transformation look like child's play. What will it look like? Let's go to our text now, beginning at verse 50, which is the start of the final paragraph of Paul's magnificent chapter on the resurrection. He says here, I tell you this, brothers, or here's my assertion, brothers and sisters. Paul makes this assertion now as a chosen, divinely inspired apostle. He says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, every person in this room, doesn't matter who you are, every person who is listening online is subject to physical decay and death. Would you agree? Our flesh and blood, physical bodies with heart and lungs and brain and bones and pancreas, we have a shelf life on this earth. We are prone, all of us, to weakening, to deterioration, to having our tissue and our cells break down. We are subject to perishing. And Mount Royal Cemetery testifies very loudly to that unassailable and very stubborn fact. Paul says in verse 50 that as we exist right now, friends, as we exist presently with these flesh and blood, perishable bodies prone to decay and to death, we are, because of Adam's sin and our own sin, we are utterly incompatible with God's glorious future. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Something radical and monumental needs to happen if the perishable likes of us would inherit, would in obtain, would secure the imperishable. Now, what's something imperishable? Something imperishable is not subject to decay. Yes? 
Something imperishable can never break down, can never dissolve, can never be corrupted. Let's go onward to verse 51. Paul says, Behold, look, focus in, I tell you, a mystery. And here in the original Greek, the word mystery means something very different than our usual understanding of the word. When we think of mystery, we might think of something that's sort of spooky or perhaps something that baffles us. It's a mystery. Or maybe we think of a Sherlock Holmes type uh, detective story, uh, solving a crime mystery of some sort. But the Greek conception here is this. I want you to listen. A mystery was a piece of God's wisdom, a piece of God's design that he had hidden in times past, but was now revealing in the latter days. I'll say that one more time. A mystery was a piece of God's wisdom. It was a piece of God's design that he had hidden in times past, but was now revealing in the latter days. A mystery was something that human beings could never work out for themselves. It was something that God had to reveal. And here's the mystery that the Apostle Paul had revealed to him by the Lord that he gives to the Corinthian readers. He says, we shall not all sleep, first of all. So that is, at the moment when Christ returns, he's coming back. At the moment when Christ returns, not all of us believers in Jesus will have died and will be lying down in a casket under six feet of earth. There will be living believers on the earth at the moment of Christ's return. Not all will have died. To be sure, some believers will have long been in their graves, but there will also be many believers still alive when Christ comes back. But, says Paul, and here's the heart of the mystery that he's revealing. We shall, how many? All be changed. All of us will be changed. Whether the believing dead in their graves or the believing who remain alive at the return. All of us, dead or alive as believers, will be changed. Change, transformation, radical alteration. This is an absolute necessity in this text, a necessity for every believer, whether dead or alive, since the perishable, us now, cannot inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You and I and the believer who died and was buried in 1801 are not presently fit. We are not currently compatible for everlasting life face to face with God on the new earth that God has planned for believers. 
Okay, so what's the sequence of events for this change that we require? How does this work exactly? How will this divine work of transformation actually take place? Uh, I want you to be honest with me here. Hands up if you just saw me blink. My blink happened so fast that no one noticed. And that is the speed at which the breathtaking transformation of ourselves will take place. Paul says, in a moment, atomos, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Gordon Fee suggested we might render this like this, in a split second, in the blink of an eye, Notice this, this transformation of believers that is coming, dead and living believers, this will happen at blazing speed. It won't be any sort of long, drawn-out transformation like when a seed grows over months and months. No, it will happen in the blink of an eye, and it will be the most mind-blowing thing that you can imagine. And this split-second moment of stupendous transformation will happen, says Paul, at the last trumpet. And that phrase, the last trumpet, has to do with the end of things as we currently know them. The end of things as we currently know them. The last trumpet will sound as the present order that we are all used to finally passes into the new order of reality. The trumpet blast, my friends, is scheduled. It is coming. Paul says, for the trumpet will sound, and what will happen? The dead will be raised imperishable, that is, Christian people whose bodies have laid in their graves, in their urns, will be raised physically to life because God is God. They will be the next beautiful pickings in the resurrection harvest that began in Christ. Every Christian who has ever been buried up on Mount Royal will ascend from the earth and the roots and the mud now with their everlastingly animated, living, glorified, transformed bodies, courtesy of God. So version 1.0 of our body, the old body in sinful Adam, will be changed into version 2. <laughs> the final glorious version don't even know what it looks like, can't imagine it. United with the risen last Adam, Jesus Christ. Believer, you will enjoy a body like his, risen, indestructible, imperishable body. Can you imagine it? Never again subject to decay and death. Imagine it. 40 billion years will pass on the new earth 
and your glorified eyes and ears and heart and lungs and bones will be just as perfect and just as agile and just as powerful as ever, indestructible, imperishable, incorruptible, like your risen king. And Paul says at the end of verse 52, and we shall be changed. That is, every believing person who finds herself or himself alive on resurrection day, having never been buried in the earth, that person too will undergo radical transformation, change, supernatural alteration to be fit, just like the resurrected dead, fit to live forever and ever with the risen king. Now, I want you to come with me for a moment to the very beginning of the Bible. And there was that horrible, world-changing moment when Adam and Eve fell into sin against God, our human representatives. And profoundly, in that moment of their fall, what happened? the realization of their shame came flooding in very heavily. And what did they do in Genesis 3, verse 7? They made makeshift clothing to cover their nakedness. Fig leaves made into loincloths. This was the first ever fashion design on earth and it was tragic. Of course, God came along then and he proceeded to pronounce his curses on the serpent and then on Eve and then on Adam for the parts that they had each played in this cosmic mess. But then after the curses were voiced, what did God do? He himself made clothing for Adam and Eve. God mercifully covered this couple. He clothed them with garments of skins. Genesis 3.21 reads, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the word clothed in the Greek version of Genesis 3.21, the Septuagint version, is the same word that we now find in 1 Corinthians 15.53 when Paul says, for this perishable, this decaying, deteriorating body of the old order with its need for root canals and day surgeries and physiotherapists and antibiotics... This perishable, this very body of mine must, must what? It must put on, and there is the word we had in the Greek version of Genesis 3.21, this perishable body must be clothed with, it must put on, like a garment, the imperishable. Get this, God had taken the pathetic fig leaves that Adam and Eve had made and God had replaced those leaves with garments of skin that he had made. He 
personally clothed them with those divinely made garments in his great grace he did this. The fig leaves had been associated with their sin and with their shame. God gave them new clothes that signified a restored relationship. And my friends, when that last trumpet sounds across this globe from heaven, God will take our old Adam clothing, our perishable bodies, and mercifully, he'll do what? He will reclothe us with the same clothing that the last Adam is wearing. A resurrected, changed, transformed body and our salvation will be complete. Our reconciliation to God will be fulfilled. We will be fit for everlasting life. Are you excited about this this morning? Fit for everlasting life in his actual presence, face to face with him. Qualitatively, we will be changed. We will enjoy a new, incorruptible physicality. No part of us will ever wear out again. Knee surgeons, every other kind of surgeon doesn't matter, will be looking for work. No more cancer, no more organ failure, no more health plans, hospitals will not be found, graveyards will have to be repurposed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable, and Paul says this mortal body, mortal why? Well, because our days are numbered. Mortal body must put on immortality. The believer, to be fit for eternity with God, must be in a body that can never physically die ever again. Immortal. Do notice the repetition of the word must in this verse. These things for sure have to happen. They must happen. Why must? Well, because God has to be true to himself, doesn't he? The purpose of the first coming of his dear son to save us completely, fully, and finally must be realized completely and finally and fully at his second coming. As he transforms our bodies so that never again will they be susceptible to decay or death. Verse 54 on that great day, friends, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. It's Easter morning. Say it out loud with me. Death is swallowed up in victory. Now notice the words there. I think it was the Star Wars character Yoda who said, Death is a natural part of life, right? That's a terrible Yoda imitation, but there it is. Yoda is supposed to be wise. That's kind of his character, right? Death is a natural part of life. But in saying that, he shows his rank foolishness. Death is not a natural part of life. Scripture teaches that death is part of the curse for human sin, Death is the wages of sin. Death is an enemy, according to Scripture. Death doesn't belong here. 
It is a most unwelcome, sinister visitor. Death is an ugly monster that somebody needs to war against and defeat. This is the biblical picture. And what we notice in verse 54 is that the day is coming, friends, when death will lose its place. Death will be defeated and deleted forever. At the return of Christ, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written in Isaiah 25, 8, it's written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to plan, at least for now, hopefully I'll remember, well, I'll have a glorified mind, so probably I will remember, but I plan to quote this verse on resurrection day, even as I'm dusting off mud and roots off of my resurrected body. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is trounced. It is routed. It loses. See here, my friends, see this, that death is an enemy that is destined for death. Death itself will die forever, yes? And so we mustn't ever, as the popular saying goes, well, you, you know, you must come to terms with death. Don't ever come to terms with death. Rather, believe the gospel, that death is an enemy that needs to be killed and has been killed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death, in fact, is something to be mocked, and it is something to be taunted, in fact, because it's on the losing side, and, and that's exactly where Paul goes next in verse 55, as he alludes to Hosea 13, 14. He says, O death, this is a taunt, trash-talking death, right? O death, you seem to have misplaced your victory. Where is your victory? In light of the risen Jesus Christ, whose resurrection overruled death, whose resurrection guarantees a wider resurrection of life, to believers throughout the ages. In light of that, where is your victory, O death? It's nowhere. The risen Christ has abolished death, in the words of 1 Timothy 1.10. He has abolished death. O death, where is your victory? Paul says further, quoting Hosea 13.14, O death, where is your sting? And that word sting makes us think of the deadly bite of a venomous snake or a scorpion. But Paul says here that this deadly sting, notice this friends, it's good news, this deadly sting has been disconnected from death. It's been unplugged from death. The teeth and the venom have been taken out. They have been removed from death. Oh death, where is your sting? And then in what comes in the next two verses, what does Paul do? He unpacks or he explains why it is true that death has no sting for the believer in Jesus Christ. Watch this. In verse 56, Paul says, now follow his thought here, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. One more time, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, just first of all, notice 
in this verse how death, sin, and law are all connected, aren't they? And I think it might be helpful in an attempt to really grab hold of this verse if we work it in reverse order. So let's start with the law here, very briefly. What's Paul talking about here? In this context, he's talking about the law of God as laid out in the pages of the Old Testament, which includes the Ten Commandments. The law of God gives the divine standard, listen, that no human being except Jesus has ever obeyed, you and I included. God's law is described in the Bible as being good, as being holy, but what God's law, the presence of it, what it does is it reveals our disobedience to God. The perfect law of God continually shows how we never reach its standards. The presence of God's holy law brings to light the depth of our depravity and the depth of our rebellion against our creator. Now, the law is sin's power, according to our verse. Again, Paul says here that the power of sin is the law. Sin depends on the law for sin's power. And maybe one of the clearest ways for us to see this relationship between sin and the law, the law and sin, is to go to Romans 5.13, where Paul says, sin is not counted where there is no law. Sin is not counted where there is no law. The inference being that where there is law, Sin is counted. The law of God ends up giving sin its condemning power. The law of God and its presence with us means that sin is counted. And we as human beings have a perfect track record, don't we, of contravening God's law, sinning and breaking the law. We are lawless. We are condemned under the law because of our lawlessness. Our sin against the Holy One who created us deserves the penalty of death. And here we've worked our way backward now to the final link where Paul says, the sting of death is sin. Now right now, if I was up on this platform and a deadly poisonous snake appeared, I would run faster than you've ever seen me run. I would sprint away in abject terror. Now let's say that that venomous snake represents death. Instinctively, we want to sprint away from death. We want to avoid death. We want to run from the terror of death, the fear of death. But here it comes. There's no escape. And as it nears us, it opens its mouth. And it reveals its sharp, intimidating fangs. And the snake, which is death, says to us, see my fangs. <laughs> 
this is my sting. But in fact, my fangs are your own sin. Your own sin, your own lawlessness will now sting you to death. The sting of death is sin. But didn't we read in verse 55 that the sting of death called sin has been removed? <laughs> oh, death, where is your sting? Have you digested this? Do you rejoice in this? The fangs of death have been removed for the believer in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. The fearsome teeth of death have been extracted. And on our deathbed, death will move in and it will open its fearsome mouth and all we will see as believers in Jesus Christ are pathetic gums. No teeth. O oh, death, where is your sting? By his cross, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus has removed the fangs of death. He has paid for sin. It has no more sting. He has conquered death. And our own physical death will not separate us from his love, according to Romans 8. Jesus has put sin and he has put death to death. He is crucified and he is risen. Death has no sting. Death has no sting. And so fittingly, where does Paul go next? Well, he goes straight to praise in verse 57. He can't help himself. But thanks be to God, he says. I can see him with arms raised. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who perfectly, listen, who perfectly obeys God's law, yes, who meets every demand of the law when we do not, and he accounts to the believer his own righteousness. It's Jesus who became sin for us on the cross and paid for it and redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. It's Jesus who rose from the dead and who conquered death itself. Victory. The victory of Jesus is our victory, believers. Are you a believer this morning? I pray that by the end of the service, if not, that you will become a believer, that God would do that. God gives us the victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, friends, it's good for us to go to this mountaintop as we have this morning. Easter morning praise is very fitting to God for such a great salvation. But tomorrow morning will come, right? Monday the toaster quit working. Uh, I'm late for my bus. Did I remember to pay my phone bill? I've always been amazed and I've been profoundly encouraged over the years 
that the final verse of 1 Corinthians 15, the final verse of this whole lofty mountaintop chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it brings things right back down to earth. So after discussing these great realities, and they are great, of Jesus rising and of us rising, Paul says, notice what he says, last verse of the chapter, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, <laughs> immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Believer in Jesus, stand firm in resurrection faith tomorrow on Monday morning, in the perishable body that you now have, on the job you now have, in the school where you are now, in the home, in the doctor's office, at Walmart or at Super C, in public and in private, be a deliberate agent of Christ's kingdom. Knowing this, I can't put it any better than as, uh, uh, Bruce Milne has put it, knowing this, he says, that every honest intention Every stumbling word of witness, every resistance of temptation, every motion of repentance, every gesture of concern, every routine engagement, every motion of worship, every struggle towards obedience, every mumbled prayer, everything, Milne says, everything literally which flows out of our faith relationship with the ever-living one, will find its place in the ever-living heavenly order which will dawn at his coming. My friends, just as there is continuity between caterpillar and butterfly, so there will be a continuity between what we do now with our days and what will be then. What we do now for Jesus and his kingdom is never, ever in vain. It is never a throwaway. It has carryover into the eternal days that we will spend in our transformed bodies with the risen Jesus. And so because of Easter, abound in the work of our risen Lord this week. Whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, or otherwise do all to the glory of God, and get excited, believer, about your imperishable body that is coming. <laughs> it's coming because of your king. Now in our very last moments, I want to address any person listening who doesn't consider himself or herself a believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've come this morning because Easter Sunday is the one day of the year when you think you should be in a church service. Well, we're glad you're here and we welcome you here. But more than that, we would love for you to know and to enjoy the treasure that is Jesus Christ. We would rejoice to you, with you, if you would turn to him and be saved. If you'd put your trust in him, trust in his cross to forgive you of your sin against God. Jesus alone can rescue you from the condemnation for your sin. Jesus alone can take all the fangs out 
of your own death and give you the righteousness that you need to be able to stand accepted before God. He alone can give you the resurrection body that you will need to live forever with him. Turn to him today and be saved. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Holy Spirit, risen Jesus, we praise you and thank you for your Trinitarian design and plan out of the love of God sending into the world Jesus Christ to be born a human being, to live a human being, to die on the cross, and then to raise from the dead to ascend to heaven, to take his seat at the right hand of the Father, and we know he's coming back. We thank you as believers for the spirit who lives with us, who indwells us, who walks and talks with us every day. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here who does not yet know you, that you would remove all obstacles and that they would come with a contrite heart in repentance to you to be saved. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. We thank you that the tomb is empty. Amen.